Big League Chew, man-sized wads of grape-tasting shredded bubble gum stuffed into a giant stay-fresh pouch. For Big League flavor and Big League bubbles, it's Big League Chew. Hi there, and welcome to Baseball by Design. I am SportsLogos.net minor league baseball contributor Paul Caputo, broadcasting live, as always, from the Sunday Helmet Hall of Fame in my basement in Fort Collins, Colorado. This is a super fun episode. I'm so excited for this. We're going to be talking about the Portland Mavericks today. That's Portland, Oregon, not Portland, Maine. I am with Rob Nelson, who was a pitcher for that team, has been a, a representative, a spokesperson for that team ever since they played from 1973 to 1977. Obviously, Rob featured prominently in the movie The Battered Bastards of Baseball, which is an awesome documentary. If you have not seen it, you absolutely have to get out there and see that movie. And Rob Nelson is the creator of Big League Chew, which is amazing. So we'll we'll talk about <laughs> all of that. Rob Nelson, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. It's a thrill to speak uh, with you. Paul. Oh, it's my pleasure. This is always fun. The 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 Portland Mavericks for the uninitiated for if you if you don't know who the Portland Mavericks are, first of all, you should know who the Portland Mavericks are. They were an independent team, but they played single A ball against affiliated teams in the Northwest League, which wouldn't happen these days. And largely because of the success the Portland Mavericks had, now affiliated teams only play other affiliated teams. You can't have an independent team playing against affiliated teams. Rob, I've been doing way too much talking here. I'm going to ask you to set the stage. Who were the Portland Mavericks? How did you get involved with them? Uh, the Portland Mavericks were a bunch of misfit toys who just loved to play baseball. Uh, when I got out of college, uh, I had one good season at Cornell. Nobody drafted me. I ended up pitching and teaching school in Cape Town, South Africa, because back in 1971, uh, nobody was interested in a left-hander who couldn't break 85 miles an hour. So it was uh, October 73. I went to Cape Town. I was teaching school, pitching pretty well for a couple of seasons. My dad sent me a packet of sports clippings and circled one little uh, ad that said players wanted. And it was the Portland Mavericks. And my dad said, your arm seems better than ever. You ought to go to Oregon and see if you could give it a try. I was a Long Island guy. And uh, so I went from New York. I went back from Cape Town to to Long Island, I did a month's worth of substitute teaching to make enough money to go to Oregon and try it out for a team, not knowing what it was going to be like. The <laughs> team was created by Kurt Russell and his dad, uh, Bing Russell, who's best known as the sheriff, uh, the deputy sheriff on the Bonanza TV series. Uh, originally from Rangeley, Maine, the Russell family was just awesome. And I was one of the 300 guys who tried out for the team. But as you said, we were independent playing in an affiliated league, and that made all the difference. We had a huge chip on our shoulder, and a lot of us really had no business playing pro ball. Bing Russell had a vision. The reason there was a single-A team, independent team in Portland, was because AAA baseball, the Portland Beavers, had left, went to Spokane, Washington. They felt that Portland needed some time off from professional baseball. And, of course, Bing Russell disproved that uh, within a couple of months of uh, the, the summer of 1973. So that's the short version. <laughs> well, uh, you know, and the, the, this is, this story is told so well in the, in the movie, the battered bastards of baseball, you pop up throughout that movie, uh, especially after, you know, the first about 20 minutes when they're setting the stage, once the players are all on the team, you pop up pretty regularly. This is a podcast about logos and branding and identities for teams 
obviously, you know, the 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 brand for the Mavericks is is really fun. It includes uh, sort of a snorting bowl. It's got this bright red color palette. But I, I would think with the Mavericks, as much as any team, this brand extends beyond the the logo, the uniforms, the the sort of overall like the visual brand of it. The brand is really established so well in this movie. You described it as the uh, the island of misfit toys. I think a great Rudolph the Red Nosed Reindeer uh, reference right there. But uh, you know the brand was really about these scruffy dudes playing against uh, what in the movie kept getting referred to as the bonus babies who played an affiliated ball. How important was was that to to you as a member of the team? This idea that you know as it's described in the movie you all have paunches you've got you know sort of various versions of facial hair you know just just this very sort of scruffy looking band of guys as compared to the clean cut affiliated bonus babies so ben russell was a genius and that he understood that if he was going to draw people to come to the ballpark we had to have a persona and it was right at the time when portland was embracing the theme keep portland weird the Keep Portland Weird concept was uh, originated in Austin, Texas, and I don't know how it immigrated up to the great Northwest, but the city was just ready for something different. And 300 guys tried out, and the only and Bing was crazy. He, he had a 30-man roster. He wanted guys to be able to go out to a pub in Boise, Idaho, and say, yeah, I'm with the ball club. And even though the last five guys on the roster never got much of a shot, Bing wanted those guys to experience the road trips, the bus, the bad hotels, the crummy breakfasts. He understood that he was, as Kurt described him in Battered Bastards, he was like the band leader and he was putting the band together. And we all knew that we played a role. Uh, I didn't pitch too very well or nor very much because of that. But Bing understood that he needed a whole group of people who could bring something to the party. When I first didn't make the team, I asked him if I could create the Little Maverick Baseball School. And I used the players that didn't play very much uh, at a public park in Portland, Oregon. Bing helped me set it up. I arrived in Portland in mid-June 1973. And by July, mid-July 1973, I was coaching 100 kids at Grant Park with my teammates as my assistant coaches. Bing understood everybody played a role there. And everybody had this huge chip on their shoulder because you had a lot of guys who had been released two, three, some of them four times by uh, organizational ball. We only had one uniform, a heavy red uniform. That was our home uniform, our road uniform, special day uniform. That was (laughs) it. You never had to say, what uni are we wearing that day? Another thing I noticed that Bing did from the get-go, the cap had kind of a Montreal Expos uh, look about it, multicolored, red, white, and black. But the letter on the uniform was an M. It wasn't P for Portland. It was M for Maverick. He knew what he was doing from day one. And he had a bare bones budget. He talked to the two newspaper guys, Ken Wheeler and Nick Bertram from the Oregonian and the Oregon Journal. He said, I don't have an ad budget, but if a story breaks, we can flip a coin right now and I'll (laughs) alternate who gets the lead in if Jim Bouton shows up, for example, Which one did. of the newspapers got the got the headline. So he did everything on a shoestring. Yeah. But he he just he knew that the city would embrace guys who played hard. And as it's pointed out time and again in the Netflix documentary, uh, guys weren't there for the money. They yeah. were there for the love of the game. And that really shines through. 
I, I, I go to Cooperstown uh, every year at the end of May. There's a thing called the Cooperstown Classic because Big Lee Chu is now the Hall of Fame bubblegum. And I hang with some of the major leaguers. Some of them are Hall of Famers. Ozzie Smith played for Walla Walla against the Mavericks uh, in the mid-'70s, and he said he loved playing against what he called a Marine unit. You yeah. guys were paunchy. You had cigarettes in the <laughs> dugout. There were like no rules with the Mavs. And, and, and yet we were managed to scrape by and, and win a few ball games and certainly win more than a few hearts. We averaged about 4,000 fans a night. It was phenomenal. So you, you mentioned the uniforms. I want to get back to the style of play because I think that that's really interesting right now. And I want to, I want to talk to you about that. But before we do that, I do want to ask you about these uniforms because the uniforms were incredible and I wish that you could get them now, right? Like I would love to get one of those bright red not only was it like a bright red jersey, you you described the tritone hat that had that sort of Expos feeling about it, but the pants were red too, and that was amazing. And there was a there was a clip in the in in the movie where you were playing against a team that was all yellow, and I don't know what team that was. It kind of looked like today's Savannah Bananas, but uh, it was you had your all red uniforms versus a team that was all yellow, and it was this amazing just sort of visual landscape. What did the guys think about playing in these in these uniforms? You know, guys never talked about. It. Nobody huh. said, I love these unis or these unis suck. Nobody, I'm, I don't remember one guy saying, I hate these unis. They may have said, this uni is hot as hell mm. because it was a thick polyester <laughs> because Bing didn't want to pay for laundry bills, you know, or, or sewing up and stuff like that. And uh, so I don't remember anybody complaining. They were just grateful to be on that bus and, yeah. and get to do what, what Bing wanted us to do. And a lot of the stuff emerged organically. So if there, if, there, if there ever was a discussion about uniforms, it would have been hilarious because those guys didn't exactly lead the league in sartorial <laughs> critique. You know, it's, it's not who they were. It's pretty It's funny. the first use of the word sartorial on this podcast. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's a really interesting point because the movie, the documentary was made in 2014. In 2014, we were pretty well into this sort of contemporary era in minor league baseball of the wacky logo, right? 24, 2014 is the year the El Paso Chihuahuas debuted. So there, certainly we were well into wackiness by then. At the time that the Mavericks played, the documentary describes pretty well these teams that you were playing against were there only to serve the purpose of developing players to feed into the major league club. There was, you know, they didn't care about selling minor league baseball merchandise. They were almost always named for their parent club. And the Mavericks were different because they were all about Portland. They were all about the local community. That's I correct. feel like in some ways we still, part of it is true. We, the major league clubs probably don't care that much whether their minor league affiliates are winning or not, but the connection to the local community is, is pretty strong with many of these teams. They're trying to really reinforce that. And we'll talk a little bit about the Hillsborough hops, right? That's an example of a team that is really connected to the local community. So, do you think that the Mavericks had an influence way back then on sort of where we are now in minor league baseball? Do you think that that sort of focus, hyper-focus on the, the local community developed into where we are now? There's no doubt that, that what you've just said is true, that the Mavericks could connect in, in ways never imagined for a short A team. I remember doing clinics where we had a couple of members of the Portland Trailblazers the North American Soccer League, Portland Timbers, and a couple of Mavericks. Yeah. They treated us like we were a big league club. And more importantly, I think, we treated the fans like they really mattered. Mm -hmm. Bing, 
time and again, I keep talking about what a great guy he was. He, he did things. I remember the guys who were at the turnstiles at the, in the stadium. After the fifth inning, he let them go home. Or more likely than not, they'd get a beer and a hot dog and they'd be in the stands <laughs> themselves. And and I was interested in the whole marketing side of the thing. And I said, yeah. why do you let those guys go in the stands? He said, it's the best PR I could have. Because anybody could walk into a Maverick game uh, after the fifth inning. So the sixth inning, we'd get a spike in attendance. Local people who really couldn't afford the two bucks that we were charging there. But he said, it's, it's kind of my PR operation. It was all masterminded by bing but it looks so very organic and the team the fans really mattered to bing he, he really he had the players go up in the stands and you can see that you know in the uh, in the film in the battered bastards that we're talking in between uh, games of a double header we're up in the stands signing autographs shooting the breeze it was it was really a fun thing to see uh, a, a team send the message that we may not be very good, but it's a pretty good show and it's worth coming and we're glad you're here. He did little things to make the fans feel important. We were the only team in the Northwest League when a foul ball went to the stands, the fan kept the ball. Hmm. If you were in Boise, you brought the ball to the concession stand, you got a Coke or a hot dog hmm. in exchange for the ball. The Mavs did it first class. We were the only team that had a live organist, Bill Blanc on the organ doing the national anthem, doing the in-between in, uh, in innings, you know, music. It almost felt like a roller rink. It just <laughs> felt like this. these guys were attention for detail. And Bing had a bare-bones staff, so everybody would do stuff. If it rained, the team, the guys helped out, roll the tarp onto the infield. The fans felt like they were part of something. You know, you got to remember, we're only like four or five years after Woodstock. And that we were kind of like baseball meets Woodstock. And, and I was lucky to be there. So you're describing the, the sort of showmanship aspect of this is really important to me because the documentary focuses on how important it was for you all to win games. And the competitive nature of the team was really important. And that's, you know, that's a big part of this story. As I was watching last night, and it's the first time in in maybe four or five years that I've seen the movie. I saw it. I saw it about four or five years ago, and then I rewatched it last night. Really enjoyed it. It it improves on a second watching. There's a lot of stuff that I caught the second time around that I that I did miss the first time. But I was reminded it felt like a combination of two things that are sort of happening in the world right now. And and bear with me for this comparison because at first it might not seem exactly apropos, but the Savannah Bananas right now. The showmanship aspect of what the Savannah Bananas are doing, uh, really, you know, the Savannah Bananas couldn't give two dams about the sport of baseball, and the Portland Mavericks very much did. So I realize the comparison breaks down there, but the Savannah Bananas are all about the the show, right? And and I think that that is something that was also part of what the Mavericks were doing. So I was thinking it was it felt like sort of part Savannah Bananas. And then part, there's another documentary that's uh, in the last few years called Welcome to Wrexham, where Rob McElhaney and Ryan Reynolds buy a soccer club in Wales, I think. And, uh -huh. you know, and they're, you know, they're, they buy this downtrodden soccer club in Wales and bring it back to prominence, uh, you know. And so these sort of celebrities, these, un, these celebrities who don't know this place come into this place and, you know, create this soccer team uh, that, that has a lot of success. And that's I was thinking Bing Russell in this movie is Rob McElhaney and Ryan Reynolds, right? Like and and he's also the Savannah Bananas with the sort of showmanship side of things here. Roll that all into one and you've got the Portland Mavericks. 
of course it was 40 years ago, right? Or 50 years ago. Oh my gosh. So I don't know. I, I was just thinking that I'll ask you, what do you think of the comparison? You know, the entertaining part for Bing was, was organic with the players. Mm -hmm. Joe Garza came up with the idea when we were about to sweep a team, he got on top of the dugout with a broom and started chanting sweep. We didn't have sweep night. He just did it on his own. (laughs) Jim Bouton saw uh, a a feature of Joe Garagiola talking about the Portland Mavericks on TV. And here's Jim, a former big leaguer, trying to make it back to the big leagues. He calls Bing and says, I'd like to come and try out. And Bing says, you're pitching Friday night in front of 8,000 people. And he did. So it wasn't like Bing planned a lot of the things the way the Savannah Bananas do and other teams do. It all just kind of, people took the cue from Bing that like there were almost no rules. Joe McLaughlin had a a black Labrador who became the team mascot (laughs) who would chase foul balls down. And so it wasn't dog night or anything like that. Even when when the the sweep thing happened, uh, Bing had a knack for making it last for more than just a two or three night thing. When, when the, the team got fired, uh, a fine rather $500 for bad behavior, uh, president Bob uh, Richmond of the league, Bing sent him a check for two grand. He said, we're going to do this at least three more times. You know, I mean, who does that? And so those things, it was Bing just talking off the top of his head in terms of promotions. We had Max Patkin night. Yeah. Because Bing had great respect for Max who was featured in, uh, 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 Bull Durham mm-hmm. and and Bing knew Max from long ago when Bing was a bad boy for the New York Yankees and he just knew a lot of people in baseball. Bing didn't have any gratuitous things going on at the ballpark. Mm-hmm. There were no uh, uh, spin your head around and get dizzy and try to reach home plate stuff. Right. I see clubs do all the time and yeah. that's okay because people seem to enjoy it. Bing wasn't into that. He wanted the guys to go out and play hard yeah. and play smart. Uh, and have some fun and yeah. Bing thought the key to having fun was basically kicking the butts of these bonus babies he always played up with that and truth <laughs> be told you know the Mavs were four or five years older than a lot of guys so we should have been winning mm-hmm. but Bing never played up that aspect he said these are guys that nobody gave a chance we are the last stop yeah. one funny thing with the Mavericks we had Gordon Erfer painted the outfield signs for us and the last year he was repainting the red school bus wasn't red in the beginning, but it became red because it was the Maverick school bus. And I walked under the stadium where, where Gordon was working and I looked at the top and, uh, and there was a typo at the top. Oh, of the thing. No. I walked into Bing's office. I said, have, have you seen Gordon's workout on the bus? He says, he's the Picasso of ballparks. The guy is amazing. <laughs> and I said, come on out here. And Gordon had put the apostrophe in the wrong place. Oh, no. He had Portland's Maverick baseball club oh, no. <laughs> instead of the Portland Mavericks baseball club. And Bing looked at that bus and he smiled at me and he said, leave it alone. I like it the way it is. And if you notice in the documentary, there are banners that say Portland's Maverick baseball club. Bing just had a knack for picking up every little nuance of nuttiness that yeah. took place at, at with the guys in the team. So, yeah, we were the bananas in the sense that we brought fun to the ballpark, but it wasn't it wasn't organized chaos. Yeah. It was unorganized chaos. It really nice. was. <laughs> well, and so that leads me to another comparison that I thought of, which is when you hear. Uh, I've done some reading about uh, Negro Leagues baseball. Bob Kendrick, uh, the president of the Negro Leagues Museum, has been a guest on this podcast. And when you hear the style of play described in Negro Leagues baseball from, you know, the 20s through the 60s, 
it's very much what was described last night in it, as I was watching the movie with the with the Mavericks. This style of play where it it was scrappy. It, it was it was based on speed. It was based on smart base running. It was based on manufacturing runs, but that was all that all derived from sort of an us against the world approach to the game right and in the same way that that the mavericks talked about you know taking on the the bonus babies from the affiliated teams the negro leagues clubs would talk a lot about you know the the scrimmages they had against uh major leaders and so there's a parallel there as well is that you know i'll ask you again what do you think of that comparison i i i think it's a terrific comparison uh, my daughter Paige, who we named after Satchel Paige, would uh. would agree with me. You know <laughs> that that uh, we, so we know a little bit of the history of the Negro Leagues, but the whole idea, Satchel Paige was flashy, but the bottom line is a man could pitch, yeah. one of the greatest of all time, and that's true uh, the, the, w- with so many of the Negro League players. Yeah. Uh, and the things that the the difference between the Mavs and the Negro League players is that we didn't have that much talent. So when we had a Reggie <laughs> Thomas. We had a Reggie Thomas who could fly like the wind, stole, I don't know, 72 bases in 68 games. He just, he just, he had a red, he had a green, I was going to say he had a red light. He had a green light anytime he got on base. Funny thing about Reggie, uh, there was a, uh, a Greek sandwich shop across from the ballpark, Suvlaki Stop. Okay. If you stole a base, you want a sandwich from Suvlaki Stop. <laughs> now you got to remember, we're all making $15 a day. Yeah. And, and some guys less. Some guys are making three hundred a month. Reggie was one of the high price players. He was making mm-hmm. fifteen bucks a day. Mm-hmm. And I swear I saw a game when he hit a ball into the gap and rounded first and pulled a hamstring. They come out, they sprayed it, they stretched his leg and stuff. Two pitches later, he stole second base, and two pitches later, he stole third base, and he won himself two sandwiches. And Jim <laughs> Bouton was sitting next to him, and he said, "Reggie, Reggie just doubled his income." You know. <laughs> <laughs> and those are true stories and you yeah. can't make that up bing didn't say listen i want you to fake an injury and then steal two bases it's okay. almost like bing gave us carte blanche to be as as unorthodox as we could because it would help the team win he didn't have guys do dopey stuff that was uh, against the grain of trying to be a good team absolutely absolutely and that comes through that absolutely comes through in the documentary one of the things that has happened since the documentary is the advent of the Hillsboro Hops. Uh, I know that you have had a, a relationship with that team. Uh, we were actually on the field after a, a ball game in Hillsboro with my baseball Palooza road trip guys, and I was speaking with KL Wambacher, who was also what been, a guy, uh, super good guy. He has been a guest on this podcast when we featured the Hops, but they have done Mavericks Night, and they have done things to to honor the the Mavericks. Hillsboro is. I don't know, 10, 15 minutes outside of Portland, you know, as if you watch the documentary, you know, that the, the Portland Beavers came and went in, in Portland over, you know, different variations, famously pushing the Mavericks out of town when baseball was yeah. sick of the Mavericks. Hillsboro has a, a different relationship, obviously with the team, obviously it's, it's much later on the timeline. Can you describe that relationship that you have uh, and that the Mavericks have with Hillsborough? KL Wambacher could be a major league general manager. And he and his wife, and I think their daughter, uh, just love living in the greater Portland area. And he's put together a, a, a team there. Uh, I'm talking about the staff, mm-hmm. that it's just an amazing operation. They see the big picture. They they understand the nuances of the new game. They probably embrace the new speed-up rules better than everybody because, because Kale is the leader there. And he said, this is good for the game. 
In terms of respecting the history of the Mavericks, we could not have been welcomed more graciously than, than by the Hillsborough Hops. Uh, it's not easy to do when you got ball players getting sent down, called up, and so forth. But KL has managed to do that. They're very, very community involved with things that matter in the greater Hillsborough community, and uh, they really are a fans' first operation. And from uh, the, the clubhouse guys to the uh, ushers, everybody is on message at that ballpark. I was delighted to hear that they're getting a brand new ballpark and they're doing it the right way. Uh, I have nothing but respect for the Hillsborough Hops, as do all the other maps. When we show up there, it's like it's like my nine-year-old son at the time, Charlie, said to me when somebody recognized me uh, on the main street on Broadway in Portland and said, didn't you used to play for the Mavericks? And, oh, yeah, you're the left there. You're the gum guy. And my son, Charlie, as we walked away, said, hey, Dad, you used to be somebody. And I said, yeah, yeah, Charlie, that's true. And the Hillsborough Hops understand that we used to be somebody. And we're all in our 70s now. And our skipper, uh, uh, Frank Peters, is going to be 80 next year. I'm sure the Hops are going to honor him like he was Casey Stengel. And the thing I love about the Hops is they don't, they don't poke fun at the Mavs. They, there's no tongue-in-cheek when they, when they speak in terms of who the Portland Mavericks were. We set the table for the Hillsborough Hops. They basically took the best of what Bing set up and added a professional flair to it, largely because of KL. Uh, they just know how to do things and they do the little things really well. They, they, they I, I've never seen the team so community involved every night. They're honoring somebody you never would have heard of before, whether it's the boys and girls club or the YMCA, it doesn't matter. It, it's it matters to the people who get on the field and it matters to the hops. Uh, I think the guy's a genius. And they have done Mavericks nights, right? Where they actually played with the Mavericks uniforms. That's right. Uh, it's pretty cool. When Dansby Swanson was with the Hops for like three weeks, he hit his first home run as a professional wearing a Portland Mavericks uniform. <laughs> so if you go on the internet and look for Dansby Swanson first home run uh, as a professional, he's got, I think, number five. And fans were bidding on the Mav uniforms. And the, the fellow who bid on the, the Dansby's uniform negotiated with Dansby afterward, and he gave him twice the money that the guy – uh, was was willing to pay for it and i think maybe a glove and a bat or something but it was so to me so typical portland oregon that a deal like that was negotiated in three minutes and dansby's got it somewhere in his home uh, but that was a great night a lot of mavs were there and to see the guys out there and the cool thing about the team was none of the guys said i don't want to play in these pajamas right they understood and i think I, again it's from kl wambacher i think he explained to the team these guys used to be somebody. And yeah. and I think it's fair to say that Kale would probably agree that the Hillsborough Hops wouldn't be the hit they are had they not picked up a lot of cues from Bing Russell and Portland's Maverick Baseball Club. I can certainly see that. You gave me the perfect segue here with uh, when you said you were the gum guy. At the end of the documentary, there's a brief little snippet of the fact that you developed what is now Big League Chew which is a staple of every kid's little league career. I certainly used to chew big league chew all the time. That's an amazing story. Uh, you know, very, I mean, you know, this is, like I said, it's a podcast about branding and, and logos that I can immediately picture big league chew, right? Like I can picture that pouch. I can picture like the illustration of the ball player and the, you know, the type and the, it's got a very strong visual brand, but how in the world did you become a, a, a chewing gum magnet in, uh, in the baseball world? 
my, my, my two brothers, Ed and Harry, prefer to call me the bubblegum baron. And, <laughs> and, 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 you know, I like that a lot. I was a middle school teacher who got lucky. Uh, I don't know how much time we have, but the quick story is I didn't make the Mavericks in the beginning. I created the Little Maverick Baseball School. One of the Little Mavs was Todd Field, an 11-year-old kid from Southeast Portland who fell in love with the Maverick magic. He became a bat boy for the Portland Mavericks. And because he became a bat boy, he got to travel with a team. And he learned if you loved your work, you could be like an eighth grader for the rest of your life. <laughs> he had so much fun. Todd, of course, is a writer-director in Hollywood. His film, Tar, this last year, was up for six Oscar nominations. He's a big league writer. And the reason I bring up Todd is because when he was a Maverick bat boy, he used to cut up slices of licorice and put it in a red man pouch. And the first time I saw him do that, I said, Todd, you're 13 years old. What are you doing? He said, relax, Rob, it's licorice. Maybe a day later, he and I were having a discussion. I said, you know, most kids don't chew licorice. I like your idea, but I think it should be bubblegum because that's what kids do. Now, going back even further, when I was 11 years old, one of my favorite players in the big leagues was Nellie Fox because my nickname has always been Nellie. And I wanted to hit and look and play like the Hall of Fame second baseman, Nellie Fox, who, if you remember his bubblegum trading card, it had a huge lump in the one cheek because he chewed a lot of the other stuff. Yeah. So when yeah. I was 11, I used to chew just copious amounts of bubblegum jammed in my cheek. If I had an 11 o'clock Little League game, I'd start chewing bubblegum at nine so I could look the look. And I used the thick handle Nellie Fox bat. And so... I think when people say, what's the origin of Big League Chew? I would say Nellie Fox, Chicago White Sox, Hall of Fame second baseman. More importantly, it was Todd Field who lit the light for me. And long story short, we eventually, Todd and I, went to his mom's kitchen and we made the first batch of Big League Chew in 1979 on Babe Ruth's birthday. And we didn't know it was Babe Ruth's birthday. Nice. It's February 6th. It was such a Portland Maverick moment that I found out years <laughs> later, February 6th was, in fact, the day Babe Ruth was born. And uh, here we are one billion pouches later. Wow. Uh, a, a minor league player with one win in three seasons with the Mavericks. <laughs> uh, it, it just fell into place. Uh, Todd and I keep in touch all the time. The reason the, biz the business emerged is because we had former big leaguer Jim Bouton. I shared the bubblegum idea with him in the bullpen. Uh -huh. And Jim said two things, three things, actually. He said, I love that idea. I could sell that idea. Hmm. What would you call it? And so on a handshake, Jim and I became partners. He put up about eight or $10,000. And to answer that third question, I answered his question with a question. I said, I don't know, big league chew? I answered in the form of a question. And Jim said, give me a piece of paper with 20 names on it. I don't think you're going to do better than that. Yeah. And he was right. Yeah. He got a deal first with a small division of Wrigley Amaral Confections out of Naperville, Illinois. And we had a three-year deal with Wrigley. They thought it would be a cute novelty after year one when we'd sold $18 million worth of gum. The following year, the Cubs were sold for $22 million. We had no idea that we had, as my dad called it, lightning in a pouch. And so it just grew and grew and grew. Uh, I bought out Jim about, oh, 20 years ago. Now the gum is made in Buffalo, New York, a small company, Ford Gum. And the reason for that was because the Mars company bought out Wrigley. And I knew that a niche brand like Big League Chew was probably not going to be served well by a mega confections company. 
And I got an agent, Bob Anderson, out of Chicago. And Bob found this small company, Ford Gum, who we're now over 50% of what Ford Gum makes. And when I show up to Akron, New York, just outside of Buffalo, I get treated like an astronaut. Like Rob's <laughs> in the factory, Rob in the house kind of thing. When I went uh, years ago and my kids were small, Jane and Charlie, the twins were, oh, maybe six years old. Paige was 11. We walked through that factory. They used to think dad worked in his car because in many ways I did. I didn't have an yeah. office or anything. Right. I was just doing it on my kitchen table. And Bouton was doing a lot of the work. I'll tell you, the one thing about Big League, too, it allowed me to keep pitching. After the Mavs were done, I was doing advertising work with the Jugs Pitching Machine Company. But I hit the road. I went back to South Africa. I went to Sydney. I ended up my baseball life pitching in London for the Enfield Spartans in the British National League. And I was in my 40s. So the gum has given me uh, many, many blessings. And a lot of people along the way. Uh, help me do that. So it's kind of a long answer for you, and I can go on further. But <laughs> you know, Bing, I asked Kurt and his two his three sisters, why did your dad keep me on the team? Because he knew I couldn't pitch at that level. And they said our dad just loved people who loved baseball. He let you do the baseball day camp. I became the pitching coach. I ran his tryouts, and I was a guy who, at Cornell, I was okay. Uh, but the Mavs, I couldn't pitch a lick. Every trick I used that worked overseas got hit 450 feet. <laughs> so it's a funny story that that Todd Field is nominated for Oscars, and I'm a bubblegum baron because Bing Russell and Kurt had a dream and put a team in Portland, Oregon. It's preposterous. Rob, it's an amazing story. I appreciate you so much taking way more time than I anticipated this might take. Rob, thank you. This has been this has been amazing. What a what a, an amazing way to spend this time and and hear these stories and talk about the Mavs and Big League Chew. Thanks so much for for being a part of it. My pleasure, Paul. Thanks a lot, Rob. I know you're on uh, Twitter or X, I guess. Now, where can people find you there? Yeah, BigLeagueChew.com is where people go. Okay. Uh, people who buy stuff, a lot of it buy from Amazon now. Our biggest retailer is is Dick Sporting Goods. Okay. Uh, but just about every mom and pop store, you can get it at Joanne's Fabrics or Old Navy. You can go to bait and tackle shops uh, <laughs> off the coast of Maine. I get photos from friends of mine. They're out for using their iPhone. Rob, they're, they're, they're selling gum, you know, in Louisiana at some, some bait shop. I, I just love it. I can't believe it. <laughs> Amazing. Rob, thank you so much. This has been such a pleasure. Well, thanks again. See Take you. Bye-bye now. All right, everyone, welcome back. Dan Simon is here with another Studio Simon Stumper, live from the studios of Studio Simon in Louisville, Kentucky. How am I doing, Dan, saying Louisville? Say it again. Louisville. That's perfect. Is it okay? All right, good, good, good. I've, it's it's been, one of those. My understanding is when I moved here, I was immediately informed of how to properly pronounce it prior to moving here. I thought like most people, it was Louisville. Mm -hmm. And though you'll hear some slightly different pronunciations, it's basically replacing the E, Lou E, that sound with an uh, Louisville instead of Louisville. Wait, that doesn't sound right. Ooh, Louisville. It's also, I guess, you know what? It's where the emphasis is also. It's Louisville instead of Louisville. Well, so I've heard some people who have lived there for a long time who just mumble three syllables and try to tell you that they're pronouncing the word Louisville. So live from Louisville, Kentucky, here is Dan Simon 
Dan, we are talking. This is a really fun episode. I, I just uh, was speaking with Rob Nelson, who, as you I'm sure know, features prominently in the documentary The Battered Bastards of Baseball about the Portland Mavericks, who played uh, from 1973 to 1977 in Portland, Oregon, and have a really fun brand with you know these these solid red uniforms, including red pants and uh, Expos style tritone cap. Man, we could get into a lot of things here, right? Because there's been, you know, there's been the various iterations of the Portland Beavers. Obviously, you created the brand for the Hillsborough Hops, who are just uh, outside of town in Portland right now. We could talk about Big League Chew, right? Rob Nelson is the founder of Big League Chew. So there's so the, this is a uh, a rich vein for potential questions here, and I'm I'm curious to see where you're going to go in today's episode about the Portland Mavericks. Well, based on that little preamble right there, I have a feeling that you're going to get this one, which is good that you're going to get it, but I, I think you're going to know it right away because you have just referenced the that great documentary film, The Battered Bastards of Baseball. For those of you who have not seen it, I believe it's on YouTube. Watch it. It's really, really good. It's on Netflix but now. The... I'm sorry, it's on, may, okay, maybe that's where I saw it was on Netflix. Um, so you've seen The Battered Bastards of Baseball? I saw it years ago, uh, you know, maybe four or five years ago. It came out in 2014, and I saw it, I, I think I saw it during COVID. I think it was one of my sort of COVID evenings at home by myself. I was like, let me check this thing out. And then I really loved it. And then just before recording with Rob Nelson, uh, I introduced Baseball by Design's wildlife consultant, Ranger Amy Burnett to the movie and rewatched it. It was her first time watching it. So I got to watch it with, with fresh eyes through, uh, through Ranger Amy's eyes as well. So uh, yes, so I have seen it twice, including once very recently. Okay, well, we have established previously on this podcast that I am not privy to the segments that precede the Studio Simon Stumper on each mm -hmm. episode. I hear it when the episode drops, just like, all your listeners hear it. I don't hear it in advance. So I don't know what's been discussed. So did you discuss that documentary during your conversation? It's, you know, we were sort of off and on. We were talking about the team. We were talking about the documentary. We were talking about Big League Chew. We we, we were sort of all over the place. Well, well let's go ahead and ask it, but you, you're probably going to know it. So now, the, I'm going to feel really bad if I don't, though. Yeah, if you don't know it, you, you <laughs> were not paying attention to the... Uh, to the documentary. So here we go. Here's our All question. Right. Which former major leaguer played on the Portland Mavericks in an effort to revive his major league career? Was it A, Mark the Bird Fidrich, B, Dennis Oiltan Boyd, or C, Jim Bulldog Bouton? It was indeed Jim Bulldog Bouton, who features prominently in the documentary who there was a lot of discussion about how he got blackballed after his book, Ball Four, was out of Major League Baseball for seven years, came back, pitched with the 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 Mavericks. And it kind of made it feel that it was a little I said to Rob during the during the conversation that there was a certain element of Savannah bananas to this Mavericks team. Now, the bananas are very much sort of a sideshow. And not about the baseball. The Mavericks were very much about the baseball, but the the way they sort of you know you know you see you see retired baseball pitchers play for the Bananas. 
you see, you know, you see that they're kind of trying to make a, a show out of it. And there was an element of that for the Mavericks, right? Like, and Jim Belton coming back and pitching for the Mavericks was very much bananas e to me. And I know, I know there's, there's a lot of areas where that parallel falls down, but I don't know the fact that they welcomed him in when no one else would was, uh, was was a really important part of that uh, the 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 show aspect of the Mavericks. I haven't got I haven't let you tell me whether I'm right or wrong. Dan, did I get it? Did I get this one? No, of, of course you got it. <laughs> yes, and let's uh, let let's talk a little bit about um, how that all worked out for old Jim. Um, he pitched for the Mavericks in 1975. He was four he had a four and one record in five starts with a 2.20 era so he a pretty good showing there he then returned to the mavericks in 1977 i don't know what he was doing in 1976 um and he went five and one with a slightly higher or very much higher era of 4.50 in nine starts but that was apparently enough to get the atlanta braves to to sign him and in 1978, uh, the following season, after going 11 and nine with a 2.82 earned run average for the Double A Savannah Braves. Speaking of the Savannah mm. Bananas, um, yeah. they would have played in the same stadium. That's the home stadium of the Grayson Stadium in Savannah, Georgia. Um, Bouton got the call back up to the show eight years since he last took the field in a in a big league uniform. Um, in that season, he made five starts, going one and three with a 4.97 earned run average. Um, in 29 innings pitch, he struck out 10, but he walked 21. Oh, nice. uh, those are not the kind of uh, strikeout to walk ratio numbers that keeps one in the majors. And that was the end of his major league career. But he did make it back. Um, and here's our did you know. Oh, okay. Um that season in 1978, when he um, was with the AA Savannah Braves, um, one of Mountain's teammates on the Savannah Braves that season was Brian Snitker, the current Atlanta Braves manager. Hmm. So, uh, and now speaking of Brian Snitker, um, there was, I would like to think that your listeners are. Well, I think it's a given that they're baseball fans and a lot of baseball fans like a good baseball book mm. and there's a baseball book. It's not as heralded as ball Four, Jim Bouton's book or, or some of the other baseball books um, out there. Um, there's a book called one shot at forever, a small town, an unlikely coach and a magical baseball season. It's by an author named Chris Ballad. And it's about a, it's a true story about a high school baseball team in, as it says, a, a, a small town in, gosh, Ohio or Indiana, or a rural town. And one of the players on the team during that quote unquote magical baseball season was Brian Snitker, same guy we're talking about. So one shot at forever baseball, baseball book fans, if you're if you have not read the book. Dan Simon of Studio Simon Stumpers recommends it. The Dan Simon Book Club. I love the idea of Dan Simon's baseball book recommendations. This is going to have as much weight behind it as like Oprah's Book Club, I think. I think uh, once, he, once you get the Dan Simon stamp of approval, 
then you know then that book is just off and running. I that's I love a good baseball book, so I will I will check that out. I want I would be remiss by the way if we did not bring up the fact uh, since we mentioned the bananas that your Savannah Bananas work that Dan Simon has done is featured in the Hall of Fame as of just very recently. The Savannah Bananas have an exhibit now in baseball's Hall of Fame in Cooperstown. And congratulations to you. That must be very exciting for you. Well, thank you. Yes, yes, it is. Um, our mutual friend and Herbrim Media member, Anna D. Tommaso, of course, has her podcast, The Baseball Bucket List. And I never thought about it being on my bucket list, but I ha- I have thought about it. I've always hoped for something of mine to be in the Baseball Hall of Fame. I first visited the Baseball Hall of Fame back in the 70s. And when I went that one time, there was a one of the exhibits, there was a room that had all of however many teams there were at the time, um, it would have been less than the 30 there are now because- 26 back then, right? Um, 20, it was, I think it was 24 back then. Oh, so okay. they, they had all of the uniforms of every team, home and road uniforms um, displayed. And I thought that was a really cool um, uh, room. I've been back to the Hall of Fame twice since then, and I don't recall them having that room. But if they did, I have worked on two major league brand identities. So had they had that room, uniforms I designed would have been in the Hall of Fame, but I don't know that they were. So um, I was, the most recent time I was at the Hall of Fame was in 19, you know what, it was, it was 15 years ago, so whatever year that was. And um, there was a bobblehead box that my, the designer who worked for me when I worked for the Dodgers designed. I guess I art directed it, but he designed it. Um, I don't remember what the particular display there was, but his work was in there. And I remember seeing that and going, oh, I wish something of mine was in there. And <laughs> now that I guess we can, Cross that off my bucket list. It's it's happened. I'm my work is in the Hall of Fame. Well, that is uh, it was very exciting, and I was I was thrilled to see that, and especially after the the great time we had uh, in Alabama at Rickwood Field, seeing a game together. I, I I when I saw that happen, when I saw they were going in, I was hoping that the the picture of me with the ball that I caught was that was thrown into the stands by the catcher and you behind me sort of pointing at the ball with a big smile on your face. I was thinking maybe that should be in the Hall of Fame. Maybe there should be a picture of you and me in the Hall of Fame with a Savannah Bananas ball. Alas, we were not contacted and asked about that. So I, I don't think that's part of the exhibit right now. Well, maybe we'll get the chance when they do the um, the pod baseball podcast exhibit, which is... Uh... I think something that the Hall of Fame needs. Maybe the second annual Studio Simon Baseball by Design baseball road trip should target Cooperstown this year. So I don't know. Dan Simon, thank you so much. This has been so much fun as always. Who knows? You know, you, you never can tell where these conversations are going to go. And and this has been another fun one. And so I look forward to having you back next week for another of your Studio Simon Stumpers 
thank you for the softball this week. I was, uh, you know, it's not always a softball and, and, you know, I've been batting about 500 recently. So, uh, I needed, I may have, I, I may have needed you to groove one to get me back on, uh, back on track here. So I appreciate that this week. It was my pleasure. And I'm looking forward to another enjoyable stumper segment next week. I hope you have a good week until then.